Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. Doing this podcast, it's been especially fun to interview artists from my hometown, Chicago. In this episode, I get to talk to a hitmaker from my adopted hometown, Detroit. Rick Stevers is the drummer and leader of Frigid Pink, which scored a top 10 hit with its hard-rocking version of House of the Rising Sun in the winter of 1970. What's especially interesting about this hit is how close it came to not happening. If the group didn't have a little extra studio time, and if Rick had been dating a different girl, we probably would have never heard Frigid Pink's version. Rick tells this story and others very well in this episode of RPM 45. How'd you get started in the world of music? Uh, actually, I wanted to play guitar. I wanted a guitar for Christmas, but my old man was a cop and really couldn't afford it because they didn't have cheap guitars back then. So I ended up getting a pair of drumsticks and a practice pad and a little book. So that's how I started playing drums. Started in grade school, went through junior high and high school, and finally got bands together, a bunch of neighborhood kids. It just kind of worked out from there. We started playing in the bars and the clubs and the teen dances and all that kind of stuff. It was just like one day, my old man came down and said, you guys are too good to be playing in the basement, so you need to find some jobs. So we got some jobs. So you guys were playing around, and Detroit had a great scene back in those days, didn't it? Yes, yes. There was a... There was a ton of stuff to do. Every place you went, you could do live music, backyard parties, school dances, uh, the clubs. We got to play in the clubs early because my old man was a cop. First gig that we did, 1963, Christmas Eve, uh, in a shop and beer bar in Werner down in Detroit. And the guitar players both got amplifiers for Christmas. And I got my first set of drums. And they all gave us the stuff early so we could go do the gig on Christmas Eve. So that was a really memorable time. The first gig out and all brand new equipment. And I remember after the gig, you know, we're, I was 13 years old. So we came home and we, uh, the streets were covered with ice. So we hung onto the bumpers of these cars and were riding down the street on the back of the cars. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> so your group that was not called Frigid Pink back in those days? No, actually, we had a couple different names early on. Uh, the, the name that stuck was Vibrations, which was actually changed then to the Detroit Vibrations. Pretty good name. Yeah, yeah it worked for us for a long time, but it got old. The, the name just got old. We wanted to change it. We had like uh, a meeting going on at the house and we had uh, my mom and dad and a bass player's sister and husband were our management. And they were sitting at the kitchen table and they're saying we need to change the name. Well, that day, the rhythm guitar player, Dan Ely, him and I were painting my mom and dad's bathroom. It was pink. This is about the time, 67 was about the time where the ladies started doing frosting in their hair. You know, they take rings of hair and they just frost certain parts of it to highlight it. One of them looked at us and said, new name for the band, Frosted Pink. Both of us looked at him and said, no, that ain't happening. And uh, later that evening, they were drinking a little bit, and there was a Frigidaire refrigerator in the kitchen, of course, and they looked up at that and said, not Frosted Pink, Frigid Pink, and let's spell it with a J to make it look like we come from overseas. <laughs> and that's how we got the name. So your Frigid Pink, and did that coincide with a move toward more rock? Well, that coincided with us actually doing our own original material. Because we weren't really doing a lot of our own original stuff at that point. We were still doing the cover stuff. Matter of fact, when we did uh, the opening for Frigid Pink, 
It was uh, You Keep Me Hanging On by Vanilla Fudge. Oh, that version was great. Yeah, we opened our show, the new band, with that song. I could hear you guys doing that. It was good. You know, we had the fog machine going and stuff. We were doing some cream and uh, Hendrix back then and some blues. We always had some blues stuff mixed in. But then you start doing uh, more of your own stuff. Yes, yes. We threw our own stuff into the mix. Went in the studio. So you buy a block time, you go on and you take all your music. We did a lot of stuff in one or two takes because we were practiced so well. We didn't need to uh, keep, you know, take 12, take 14. Didn't need to do that. We had like 20 minutes left because we finished early. And they said, what else you got? We said, well, you know, me and the guitar player had worked on House of the Rising Sun a couple of times without the other two guys. And we looked at each other and said, well, what the hell? Let's try that. You know, we're not ever going to use it. Well, let's just put it down because we got the time. And of course, you know what happened. That's, uh, that's the one that took off. Now, we had played an LSAC show at Cobo Hall. It's a benefit thing. There were a lot of groups on there. Uh, Dennis Yost and the Classics Four were there that day. Another person that was there was Jerry J, a uh, country dude, Let the Four Winds Blow and Old Josephine. Yeah. He had, hit, he had hits with both of those. And uh, he was with London Records at the time. And we had done our set. I mean, you had two minutes to set up. You had seven minutes to play and two minutes to get the hell off the stage. Wow. I mean, it was tight. So this guy approached us in a suit and said, blah, blah, blah. And this guy's band didn't show up. And this guy's country and Western now. So we're kind of looking at him thinking, uh, well, you know, we don't do that kind of stuff. He says, it's simple, man. Just come on back in the dressing room and we'll teach you these two songs and blah. So we did the two songs and we get done with it. And he approached us and said, listen, we'd like you to come on the road with us. And it's kind of like, well, we're still in high school. So I don't think that's going to go over well. <laughs> Alan, Alan Mitnick, the guy from London Records, said, here's my card. When you go into the studio and record something, look me up. So we went to the studio, we recorded, and God gave me you. And tell me why I believe we were released first. But God gave me you was released in Buffalo, New York, and Detroit. So they were trying to song out there. Well, in the meantime, I was dating Paul Cannon's daughter, who was a program director at WKNR, Keener 13. Which was at the time a big top 40 station in Detroit. Oh, man, that, that Keener was hot. That, that, you listen to CPLW or Keener, that was right. it. So we get back from a date, and I'm sure you know, you've heard of Heinz Drive, right? I've heard of it, yeah. Couldn't tell you where it is right now, but I've heard of it, yeah. Anyhow, that was a place to go necking. So we had been out on a date. We just come back from there. And you always got the classic knock on the window. It's the cops saying, what are you guys doing in there? Right? Right. So we get back, we get back home and I'm dropping her off. And we're necking in the driveway. And we get this classic knock on the window. And it's like, what the hell? We're not at Heinz Drive. And it's her dad. And this guy's like 6'2", big dude. And <clears throat> she rolls the window down. And he says, I'd like to see you inside for a minute. And I said, oh, shit, here we go. Didn't do nothing wrong. And uh, we got inside, sat down on the couch. No sooner did I sit on the couch, he had a radio on the mantle of his fireplace and House of the Rising Sun came on the radio for the first time. Wow. It's like, can I, can I use your phone? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I called I called home and I said, hey, turn on Keener. We're on the radio. But Paul Cannon was instrumental in having our management call London Records and say, listen, you need to drop. God gave me you and put House out like now. So they dropped God gave me you and put House out. And that was kind of like the beginning of the whole thing. Yeah. So he actually took an interest in that song before they made it a single. Well, what's really funny is I had 
Of course, I'm going to let him hear all our, our new material, right? I had a little Panasonic reel-to-reel with me that I had the music on. And they only liked to listen to the first 15, 20 seconds tops. They could tell if it was a hit record out of out of the gate, you know? Yeah. So we get through, I get through all of the music that's on there. And House started up, and I turned it off because I wasn't even going to let him hear it. He says, no, no, put that back, turn that back on. I want to hear that. And we went past 20 seconds. So I'm thinking, well, he must like this. And uh, yeah, sure enough, he says, listen, uh, call Walt McGuire at London Records and, and put House out. And House just took off like crazy. Uh, the last count that I remember Walt McGuire telling us, it was seven and a half million copies. Wow. That, that had sold of that single. Worldwide. Yeah, worldwide. In retrospect, the animals had only sold like 750,000 copies of theirs in 1964. So I know the animals is the one that gets heard everywhere. But I remember back to what was going on in the day, and they actually called our version of House of the Rising Sun headbanging music. So there were a lot of places that wouldn't play it until after 6.30 or 6 o'clock. And then we got a letter from the Chamber of Commerce in New Orleans saying, listen, we love the way you guys sound, but we're not playing a record because of the content, you know, because of the whorehouse in New Orleans kind of thing. So we'll, we'll be more than happy to play your next one. And uh, that's how it took off. And in the U.S., it was a gold record. It, you know what? It actually would have been triple platinum, but they didn't have platinum out back then. Okay. It was so it was uh, over a million copies then. It must have been quite a bit over a million copies. Oh, it was far more than a million, yeah. And how old are you at this time? Well, let's see. Um, 19. Yeah, because I, I believe it was actually done in late 69, and then it was finally released in 1970. So the studio work was done in 69. So, yeah, I was 19. So you're 19 years old. You've got a record that sells seven and a half million copies worldwide. What does that do to you? I mean, how, what's the feeling like in the group and for you personally? God, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if it uh, kind of hit me, but it didn't hit me then. I think it was actually years later until I actually realized what was really going on. I didn't pay much attention, didn't catch a lot of people's names because I figured once we hit, we're going to stay there. And of course we didn't. So after you have the hit, you're, you're probably touring a ton. Yes. Tell me about that. Where, where'd you go? Well, you know, we uh, did a lot of Canada. We did a lot of the East Coast and states between here and Florida. Uh, with all the groups that were out at the time, Steppenwolf and Paul Revere and the Raiders and Keith. And we did shows with Billy Joel before he was uh, into his hit music. You name it, whoever was out back then, we were doing shows with them. I heard that uh, Led Zeppelin opened for you guys. Yes, but we didn't know them. We didn't know who they were. Uh, I believe we were in our dressing rooms when they actually played. They were just some other band that was opening for us that we didn't care about. Wow. We didn't care who was opening for us. We were upstairs with the, the girls and doing our thing. Wow. Yeah, so you, you're uh, coming off this big hit uh did you go out and buy a ferrari or something like that i mean what was that like well no we, matter of fact my uncle owned a chrysler dealership so we all went and bought brand new chrysler products <laughs> except for satch i think satch got uh he got an opal gt at first oh then, I... he, went, then he went over well, he got ruined by some big buick now, i don't know how he lived through that that but, had to be uh, ugly yes he ended up going by a barracuda 
after that. But yeah, so all of us ended up with cars from the dealership. But yeah, there was no big spending spree going on. There wasn't a lot of money happening. Um, management was paying us a set salary and put, putting that money away. And I don't really want to get into that part of it. Okay. But uh, yeah, it, it wasn't pretty. We didn't make what we should have been making. And we didn't get the recognition that we should have got. You are in the Michigan Rock and Roll Legends Hall of Fame. Yes, we are. All right. So you, you got recognition at some point, right? We played for the President of the United States four times. Which president Again, was this? Nixon. Really? Yeah, I guess he was a fan. I would not have guessed that Nixon was a hard rock fan. Me either. <laughs> go, go figure, huh? <laughs> the Nixon we never knew. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you, that was, a, that was a fun situation there. I mean, they put us up at the Fountain Blue down there, and the FBI people were saying, you got to do this, you got to do that, don't do this, don't do that. They finally had to pull the whole FBI crew together and point us out because we were getting stopped going in and out of the hotel because the uh, yippies or something were causing some big revolution down there. So they pointed all four of us out to all the FBI people so that we could get in and out of the motel without being stopped. Oh, wow. Crazy. And, and I remember one of the guys coming up to us and saying, okay, here's the deal. Everything's on us, including the hookers. <laughs> so just just charge it just charge it to your room <laughs> i don't think we ever did that but uh they, that's what they told us i don't know if it was a joke or not because we never actually tried it out well you were rock stars you didn't need to pay for it no no that, that wasn't a problem believe me yeah right how were the groupies anyway beautiful and we had uh a mother and two daughters that followed us around down in Alabama, Little Rock area. And I actually had a couple of pictures of the mother and the two girls sitting on a couch with us. And it was like, holy cow, I forgot all about that. The mother was taking the two daughters around. Wow. The mother was having fun too, so Kinky. great time. Yeah, I bet. So tell me, like, what happens? So you have House of the Rising Sun, and it's this huge hit. And as you, you mentioned a little earlier... Uh, you were unable to follow up on the success of that single? Well, after you sell that many copies of one song, following up with the success can be gauged differently, I guess, because we did Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley, which sold 750,000 copies. That's a pretty respectable number for back then. It sure is. But after you sell 7 million, 750,000 doesn't sound like a lot, so you take it for granted. We had Sing a Song for Freedom from the second album, the Frosted album. My God, I got royalties from that song overseas for 35 years. Wow. It did not go well over here, but over there in Germany and England and every place, it was, it was a big hit. At some point, the band must have broken up. Well, the original band broke up in late 71. A bunch of different versions were around. My old man was a manager and tried to put this together and tried to put that together. 2001, he wanted to do it again after he let the name sit on the shelf for many, too many years. And I finally actually quit. Uh, he died and left everything to my sister, including the name of the band, which was actually supposed to have been mine. Yeah, so it cost me a lot of money to get the name of the band back, and she still has the publishing companies. Wow. Which I really wanted to get my hands on because she's not doing anything with them. Huh. And uh, she still has them. 
So she can keep them. I don't need them anymore. I got such talented musicians right now. These guys are just writing songs like crazy. Now, I saw a video of you on Fox 2, a local station in Detroit. This is maybe from, what, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. Yeah, it was about five years, I believe. Are those the same guys who are in your band right now? Yes. Okay. Yes, they and are. They were yep. four fairly younger guys, I would say. Uh, all younger than I am. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but not that much younger. I just uh, thought it was interesting. I mean, here you are, a guy around my age, and you're in a band with uh, younger guys. And what is that like? You know what? There doesn't seem like an age difference at all. That's great. There has not been an argument, a quarrel, a fight, a misunderstanding in the last 10 or 11 years that I've had the band back together. Being a drummer is a pretty physical activity. Yes, it, it really is. And so as a, a senior citizen drummer with a bunch of younger guys, uh, how would you compare yourself to you were back in the day? Are you still up there? Okay, well, I'll tell you, styles have changed a lot. Truthfully, it has not progressed with the style change the way I'd like to. Car accident prevented some of that back uh -huh. in 2007. But, uh, yeah, I don't play like a wedding drummer, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> Still playing a double bass drum kit and uh, pretty heavy hitter. Still using big two Bs. And if you're standing next to me, it's loud. My son plays and he seems to think I'm doing okay. And my grandson now is starting to play. He's only six, but that's three drummers in the family. So it looks like it's going to keep going for a while. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Well, I think you guys sound really good from what I've heard. And I'll, I'm certainly going to listen more now that we've talked. Yeah, yeah catch, catch up with the new one. Which is called Hot Pink? Hot Pink. Hot Pink. Okay, that's the new EP. There's uh, four brand new tunes on that. There's one called Sing, and it's a song that reminds me of tunes back in the late 60s and 70s that you actually, you need to sit down and listen to it. You're sitting down and having a drink or smoking a joint, just to listen to all the parts in it. Our keyboard player is extremely accomplished. He worked up... Uh, I can't remember the name of the place up north. Um, it's a big music thing. Interlocking. Interlocking, yeah. He was he studied up there for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, both the guitar players have been playing most of their lives. Uh, Ricky Z is actually a guitar teacher. He teaches still. Uh, the other guitar player, I found him and the bass player. I worked for Chrysler for a while, and they were down at the plant down in Toledo. Mm -hmm. Talked to the bass player and said, listen, I'm going to put the band back together. And he freaked out. Oh, my God, put your pink. Yeah, let's do this. I said, okay, but we're going to need some people. And he says, well, you know, there's a guitar player that works over here on the first line. It took me two months to talk Ricky H. There's three Ricks in the band, by the way. So we're pouring a crowd and somebody says, Rick, all of us answer. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. So Ricky H., after probably close to three months, we finally talked him into coming in and trying it out, and he's still with me. Awesome. So, I mean, it's it's been a very delightful band to be in. So you, I don't know how else to describe it. Okay, well, you work for Chrysler. What would you do for them? Uh, program management. So I, I worked at the Viper plant. I worked at the Grand Cherokee plant. I worked at the Liberty plant, the Nitro plant. They kind of moved me all over the place. And uh, that's the point where I really wasn't playing music. I was playing in a bar band, just doing some cover stuff just to keep playing. And then it finally got to me. I said, you know what? Sold probably uh, 
in the neighborhood of probably 10 million records altogether. I think it's time to start playing again. Uh huh. And then I got the bug and just got it going again. Well, listen, I think, um, I, you know, I, you guys sound great, and I hope you can bring back the, the classic sound. That would be awesome. We're trying, um, that's for sure. And the new tunes that we're doing are definitely in that vein. And it's kind of good when I let new people hear this stuff, and they say, well, you know, that sounds like 1970. Yeah. Well, that's cool, because that's what we're looking for. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's got the newer sound, but, uh, yeah, the songs are written in the vein of the... Late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that uh, our generation definitely is into that sound. Uh, the question becomes, do they want to hear new songs with that sound? That's the question. I don't have the answer to it, but hopefully you'll find it, and the answer is yes. Yeah, I sure hope so. We have more coming. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. No problem, Mark. I appreciate you uh, calling and being interested in what the group's doing. Thanks to Rick Stevers of Frigid Pink, still rocking after all these years. Now, you and I have to talk. I haven't pushed it, but RPM45 could use your help. It could use more subscriptions and more reviews. So if the podcast platform you're using offers those things, please use them for RPM45. Of course, that's only if you like what you're hearing. If you don't and you got this far, well... You just wasted 20 minutes.